morning, uh, I have this one session. I set it up for that. Because uh, I, you know, I didn't want to do a lot of repeating to you guys who hear um, these things on the online and, and different ways. But I did have something on my heart, and I'll um, try. As I started uh, looking at it, I didn't. Th I just thought, well, one session will be good. And then now I've got 15 pages of stuff I've got to go through. So gird your loins. We're going to go through a lot of scripture and look at some things in a particular portion of scripture. It's very familiar to us. But... I want to address it in a way that maybe we haven't looked at it before, a way that maybe gives some understanding to the, to the weight of it. I'm talking about Psalms 119. We're going to sit here and go through the whole psalm. Yeah, I'm just going to read all 176 verses. It's going to be great. And we could do that. Uh, you know, but we could get locked down in the minutia of the whole thing, just those minute little details of every verse. But beautifully, the way this, in, even in the, when it was constructed, there's not an author attribute to this psalm. Most believe it was David. Some think it was others. It really doesn't matter. When you look at the way that this psalm was constructed in the midst of the beauty of the psalm itself and the declarations of the excellency of the law and the beauty of the word of God and how excellent are your precepts and just the beautiful words that, that's in this psalm, the way it's constructed, you see an overriding, overarching theme that concludes the whole thing in the midst of the minute details, just in the way it was written. But before we do that, let's read some other verses to get into that mindset because I said I didn't want to do a lot of uh, repeat in Romans, but we are going to go to Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. And I think it will be clearer why we did that as we go. Um. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there because that's where the actual transcripts stop that verse. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Let's not skip over that. I was going to skip over that. Many of us read who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And we then automatically, as the natural mind, the religiously motivated natural mind does. Because when Paul talks about the natural mind, in every instance, he is talking about the natural mind with spiritual ambition. With spiritual motivation. Because that's the thing he's always putting a hammer to the motivations that would have me looking unto the law for righteousness or looking to zealous works and 
religious observances to find a particular spiritual aspect that I seem to be lacking. And what we're going to see in the whole of, the, of this psalm is that even in the midst of not only excellent are your words and how beautiful are your precepts, sweeter than honey in my mouth, there's also a cry for the necessity of the grace of God to be given to that one crying of such excellencies to actually be able to do and perform and fulfill what is written there. Um, Charles, well, I'll say it this way, the, the books or the volume of the book called The Treasury of David, I think Spurgeon wrote, goes through the whole Psalms. Well, in this particular Psalm, he introduces Psalms 119 and says that this Psalm, not just due to its length, but the fact that almost every verse describes the Word of God, the law, the precepts, the commandments. And he uses 10 different words to declare one thing, the whole of the testimony. Not a verse goes by that that's not mentioned. He says, when you look at this verse, you see the whole of the Scripture in a microcosm. And it brings to me these words, they are they that testify of me. But you will not come to me, that you may have life. And we'll find that in the midst of this psalm, this one who is loving the law with all of his heart, pursuing it with all of his affection, is also crying out to the one who says, that's me he's talking about. But in the construction of the whole psalm, you see that God had that in mind from the beginning. And he knew that the only way that that soul that was loving the law, yet knowing his inability to perform it, had to be overridden by a greater party than himself. He had to have the excellency of another life, another source for that reality to be the reality that he knows and partakes of and enjoys. So, keep all that in mind as we go in this. But there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ, and Paul stops it there. Why? Because we add that caveat, that little clause, because we think the way there's no condemnation is if you prove that by the way you do actions, activities, or the lack thereof. Those particular things that we observe and point to and say, there's the proof. Used to, when I was growing up, the proof was how long your skirt was, or dress, and then the sleeves here, and hair down here, or either up here. <laughs> there's a conclusive statement of absoluteness here, that in Christ there's no condemnation. Why? Because in Christ, the only thing that truly determines the state of being is Christ. This phrase is not defined by those who are in Christ. It's defined by the Christ in whom they are. That's the thing we have to keep in mind. Brother Lumen's talking about the high priest. He'll conclude tonight. I, and, and that's the beauty of the high priest. The whole thing is one man standing in the Holy of Holies, perfect in the sight of God, accepted. He didn't have to say, hey, I'm going to go in there and get this stuff ready. You're going to come in after me. Though there's no after me. There's only me. Amen. That's the beauty of this. And we'll see that the construct of this psalm shows that 
too. But for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Beautiful freedom from an internal law. For what the law could not do. Hear these words because this is going to be important. Verse 3 and 4 is going to be very important as we get into Psalms 119. What the law could not do. And that it was weak through the flesh or it had to deal with the weakness of men. It could not be brought to its conclusion through the agency of flesh. There's the weakness of it. Because it had a spiritual conclusion. Remember law, uh, Paul said the law is spiritual. I'm carnal. It has a totally different object in view, not me. It was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son. Here's how he, can, here's how he fixed this, remedied this situation. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh through the cross, death, by killing that source. That man. Here's why. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. See that? That's a passive statement. That's not an active statement. That's not saying so we can finally fulfill the law. It's saying that another party stronger than ourselves with sufficient powers that we do not possess fulfills in us what we could not fulfill ourselves. That's why the cross, so that we could now draw from a greater source called the seed of incorruptibility. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And that is there, but that's not a clause. That's speaking of a state, a condition of the soul that is in Christ. Because further down in this very chapter, we've been dealing a lot of time on it in my classes that I'm doing He's talking about a state of being because he'll say to them, brethren, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit if the spirit of God dwells in you. Well, how do we know the spirit of God dwells in us? We're born again. So what does that mean? That means you're not in the flesh. You're in the spirit. You're not in Adam. You're in Christ. You're not in death. You're in life. That's the same thing. The reason we have qualified it as in the flesh and in the spirit is so we can do our job of pointing out the, the problems. And say, see there, you're not in the spirit. That attitude's not in the spirit. You're in the flesh. No, not if I'm in Christ. I might act stupid. That didn't jump me out of Christ. It just means I'm stupid. And thank God he overrides my stupidity. Right? If not, what good is this? Is there an anchor or not? And you know who the anchor is? The one he's going to talk about tonight. The one standing in the holiest of all. Our forerunner. So the indwelling life of Christ that brings no condemnation has brought in our soul a fulfilled righteousness. The righteousness that the law, the commandments, the precept of God, precepts of God testified of but could not provide. So keep your mind on this third and fourth verse of Romans 8 as we go. Galatians 3.21, I'm going to try to hurry through these. Is the law then against the promises of God? 
Now I'm talking about the law because that's what he's talking about here in this psalm. Is it again the, against the promises? God forbid, for if there had been a law given that have given, could have given life, then verily righteousness should have been by the law. Why? Because there is something connected. Righteousness is connected to life. Not connected to actions. Righteousness is inseparable to the life of Christ, not the actions of men. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Or you think in performing them and applying them and doing what they say you have life eternal. But it is them that testify of me. They are they. There's the plurality. They are they. But guess what they do? They condense into the singleness of me. That's what we see in Psalms 119. Yet you refuse to come to me so that you may possess that life. Why? Because we would rather exercise in activities and produce and acquire and achieve than do exactly what the first man did not do and say, I need that life that's not of me. Because God said you could partake of that life anytime you want. That tree, eat all you want of it. But you know the problem? That's a life outside of myself. It doesn't make me wise. It doesn't make me like God. It partakes of something that's not me, but another. But that's the only life in which there's nothing to condemn. There's nothing. But see, the beauty of our salvation, the beauty of the truth as it is in Christ is that's the life we presently possess. This is not something we achieve further down through a process. This is an absolute immediate thing. Recently I went through the, where Jesus heals the woman with the issue of blood. And it's such a beautiful story. Most people just talk about the healing. You know, healing of her body, healing of the drying up the issue of blood. And they're like, wow, isn't that great? Wonder if we could do that today. The whole thing is that under the law, that woman was unclean. The law condemned her as unclean. You can't come out. You can't be around people. You're unclean, kind of like COVID-19. You better not get around me. Stay to yourself. She made the trek to Jesus and said, if I can just touch him, I'm going to be whole. See, that's what salvation is, whole. We've broken it down into pieces and parts that we get dispensationally or whatever. But she said, I'll be whole if I can just touch him. That's what the whole story is about. So that my uncleanness will no longer be an issue. Why? Because when I touch him, there's nothing unclean. And he wasn't affected by her uncleanness. Her uncleanness was affected by his perfection. That's the beauty of this salvation. That's how real this is. It's, 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 it's not jump in, jump out, transient, banana peel theology. This is real. This is a whole thing, a brand new life, something altogether new. 
and we try to corrupt it by seeing the particular little things that we do or say or think and we think, well, that messed it up. If it could, it's not him. If we realize the sovereignty of a king, and that's something that's been on my heart lately, the sovereignty of a king in his domain, if we realized how absolute that sovereignty was, we would not question these things as we do. We would not walk on, you know, walk on eggshells and, and tiptoe around. No, we'd say, thank God for the grace that has wrought such a miracle. We would be a people thankful, not a people dreadful. And fearful. Anyway. Matthew 5. This is Jesus coming to declare himself as the end of the law. The fulfillment of it. Matthew 5.17. Think not I am come to destroy the law. Or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. And then he begins to declare a few other things. And one of the things is in verse 20. I say unto you, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not in no, you, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. And see, there we go. That starts us out. Okay. Now my righteousness has to be as perfect as the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, here's a secret. You know what their righteousness was? Nothing. That's what Paul says. My righteousness is of the law and it's nothing. It's just like filthy rags. Going back to the uncleanness under the law, a menstrual rag, that's unclean under the law. That's my righteousness, that's man. And the prophet, when he says righteousness is, he doesn't say righteousness, he says righteousness is. Plural. Why? Because that's what I do. I have a whole litany of things that I try to do to be righteous. I have a whole list of methodologies and things that I perform and I know that's how I do it. Just like brushing my teeth and drinking my coffee. But I do that in the opposite <laughs> order. Or it's not good. <laughs> but he's presenting to them the righteousness of the law that is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees as himself. Because he says to them, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. I'm saying to you as the perfect law of God, fulfilling the written law, that even looking at a woman to lust, in, you've already done it in your heart. It's an internal matter that needs to be addressed, not external things, not the constraining of actions, but the changing of the internal makeup of man. So what do we do? We say, well, that's a stronger law. Wow, we got a greater burden under the new covenant than we did the old covenant. No, you don't. You have another life. A life that is this perfect righteousness in its fullness. Righteousness of the law fulfilled in us. That's what he's describing. So, with all that said, I want to take a look at Psalms 119. Turn there. And we're not going to get caught up again in the small little details, but I want to give an overview of the point. I want to see this overarching, this dominating point that is being made by the author, by God, who inspired it to be written. Psalms 119, verse 1. 
Uh, I have this, it's the King James that I have in the notes here. I won't turn, I've got something else here, but I'm just going to read these verses because you'll notice some translations do it differently, but you'll either notice at the beginning of every eight, there's going to be sections of eight verses in this, in this uh, psalm. 22 different sections, eight stanzas each section, right? The beauty of this is it, we'll, we'll, we'll just, you, some, most of you probably already know this, but if you don't, we'll, we'll talk about it. Because again, the construction of this psalm gives us, the, gives us the point of the whole psalm. The 22 different segments correspond to the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Okay? So, you either see at the beginning of each segment a symbol, a Hebrew letter, or you'll see it say in parenthesis at the beginning, Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there's a reason that he did this. It's beautiful. Now, I remember about seven years ago, Robin came up to me. We were in Hartsville during the conference. And he came up to me with Psalms 119 opened up, and we were talking about why, why are these symbols over each one of these? And I remember looking at it, and that was the start. Seven years ago, I began to look at this because of a question he was asking. And now I feel like I at least talk a little about it. The way God just orchestrates these things is tremendous. Read this first verse and then this sets us off at the whole of the letter. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies, that seek him with the whole heart. They also do, listen to this, they also do know iniquity. They walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all your commands, your commandments. Just those, that's the first segment of this psalm, the first eight verses, right? Or not the first eight, but that's in the first segment of it. And already, if you look at it on the surface, that's a lot of work to do, right? Blessed are the undefiled in his way. Blessed are those that keep his testimonies. That word keep means to keep perfectly, to fulfill entirely, to keep it, to guard it with your heart. Blessed are those, they do, they, they do no iniquity. Just these first verses make you want to go, well, okay. That's not me. Exactly. That's the point. But in the midst of knowing that, this man who is saying, 
Blessed are those who are perfect in your way. Blessed are those who do no iniquity. He's also in the midst of the, read the whole thing. He's crying out for a mercy that is not within himself, a power outside of himself and his capacity to make this so of him who's crying this prayer and singing this song of praise. Because although he knows the excellencies of God's precepts, he knows the non-excellency of himself. And he's trying to make the two compatible. And he's trying to figure out how these things are compatible. How can the perfection of which the law speak translate into a man? How can that happen? He knows that the law is excellent. He knows the word of God is perfect. He's not like we do try to say, well, there's probably problems in this translation. No. (laughs) Problem is in the one reading the translation. There's no problems. There's no, there's no mistake. There's no contradictions. It is perfect. And this man knew that, but he understood there's someone in this scenario, not perfect that needs help from someone that can bring that help, that needs a sufficiency that's not of me. And all of this stuff is answered in the new covenant. All this stuff is answered in this life that the law spoke of but couldn't give. This is not something, again, Christians will read this and say, wow, golly, how am I going to do this? You don't. You can't. He's talking about a state of happiness, a state of blessedness, not actions bringing about blessedness, but a state of blessedness imputed to a soul that comes under the headship that this psalm and its very construction declares. Those who are found in him. Now, let's look at this word for a second. Word undefiled. You remember, it's not enough. And that's what this man knew. And you can hear echoes of the messianic declaration of himself throughout this letter too. I mean, it's just a beautiful integration of the divine and the weakness of the flesh just coming, flowing together. And then you see in the structure of the whole thing why and how God was like, see, this is what this is all about. This is why it's beautiful that Spurgeon says this one psalm is like the microcosm of the whole of the Bible. They are they that testify of me. Testify of me as a life that would bring about a righteousness that you assume you already have because you do what the law says. No. Law observation wasn't enough. The rich young ruler come unto Jesus and said, all of these things I've already done from my youth. Now what? You see that? Now what? Well, see, he wasn't as honest as Paul was in Romans 7. Paul knew he kept everything from his youth as well, but then his cry was, who will deliver me from this death? This entire body, mass of humanity, this Adamic create, who's going to unloose me (coughs) from this? Well, (coughs) that's the whole dilemma and answer 
Romans 7, Romans 8 is found in Psalms 119. The whole thing. Because you'll see the same cry of the, of the author here in Psalms 119 because he will say, he will speak of his own wretchedness. He will speak of his own shortcomings and how he fails, but he will still declare the excellency of the law and the precepts and teach me these ways. Give me understanding of these things that I will not sin against you. <coughs> A lot of work. No, that's what we think. It's one work. One work. Christ in you. That's what this is talking about. I'm not here this morning to give you steps to acquire anything. I'm telling you the one step God took to achieve everything and to bestow it as a gift of love to us. That we may partake of every spiritual blessing in the beloved of God. That's why this starts out, blessed are those. Because <laughs> we're talking about a state of absolute blessedness that is found only in the headship of one. My allergies are kicking my rump this morning, sorry. Everyone listening, my coffee. No, I got coffee, but I need some I need some menthol. All right. Um, so again, we hear these words and we think, what can I do to make this sure? You can't. God did. God did it all. A once and for all act called new birth brought this about. And the ongoing perpetual working of the spirit to make known the nature of that new birth by the revealing of Christ is what causes us to understand Undefiled is not me, it's him. Perfect is not a description of the man that I am. It's, it's, it's a description of the perfect man that only he is. That's what this is saying. So the word in the Young's literature says the happiness, the joy, the blessedness, these are the same words, or even the contentment of those who are perfect in the way or walked in the law of Jehovah and the word perfect means this without blemish these words will bring up verses through the through the scripture when you hear this right without blemish complete full perfect sound without spot undefiled upright whole that's what this word perfect means blessed are those who are perfect who are undefiled. What a, what a word. What a way to start this off to condemn everybody who's easily condemned. Wow. Right? How can that be? Well, it's already. And we'll get into some verses where Paul declares it's already your state in Christ. Leviticus 21 shows us something very, just beautifully. And it's not politically correct by any stretch of the imagination. And you'll see why. But it points out a beautiful thing. In Leviticus 21, it was not just the animals that were brought and sacrificed that had to be without blemish and spot. It was the one bringing the sacrifice. 
That's why he had to fulfill all of those particular testimonies. Because it was so minute in its details saying, it doesn't matter, any blemish at all can't approach me. See, there's, there's what Christianity is still trying to fix. All the blemishes. Well, we're going to show you where the blemish is. In a literal translation, it tells you where the blemish is, not outside. Now, of course, during the testimony, it had to be outside because everything of the testimony was outside, but it was always talking about something internal that was either given of God or that God would erase and put away. So, in Leviticus 21, speaking of the priesthood who would approach him with sacrifice, he says in verse 17, Speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed, that means priesthood, in their generations that hath any blemish, not a particular one, not a bad one, any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. For, who, for whatsoever man he be that hath a blemish, he shall not approach. And then he lists some. A blind man, a lame, <laughs> he that hath a flat nose, I wouldn't be able to approach. Or anything superfluous. Or a man that is broken footed, broken handed, crook backed. Or a dwarf. Told you, not politically correct. Or that hath a blemish in his eye, or hath scurvy, or is scabbed, or hath his stones broken, that means his testicles broke. No man that hath a blemish of the seed of Aaron, the priest shall come nigh to offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire. He hath a blemish. That settled it. He has a blemish. He can't come. He shall not come nigh to the office, the bread of, offer the bread of God. He shall eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go in unto the veil, nor come nigh unto the altar, because he has a blemish. That he profane not my sanctuary, for I, the Lord, sanctify that place. He sanctifies the sanctuary. You know what that means? Nothing with a blemish comes there. But then Paul says, you are the sanctuary. Those things don't seem compatible, right? See, what he's doing here, and you have to notice this, in the Young's Literal Translation, it describes where the blemish is. Because, you know, of of these things described, he's saying, you know, crook back, broken neck. I mean, not broken neck, he'd be dead, he couldn't broke. Broken wrist, whatever. Flat nose, dwarf. Young's literal says it this way, no man in whom, in whom is a blemish of the seed of Aaron the priest can come nigh to bring near the fire offerings of Jehovah because the blemish is in him. There's the, that's the literal translation. The blemish is in him, not on him, not just surface, it's in him. There's where the blemish is found. There's where the, all the blemishes are found. And it all comes under the heading of one blemish, dead in sin. Under the headship of Adam. There's 
<laughs> There's the blemish. Yet, it says, that where the law did not perfect man, the bringing in of a better hope did, by which we do what? Draw nigh. Unto God we approach. Wait a minute, I'm blemished. Nope. Not in him. Not if you're of his life. Not if you're born of that seed. There's no blemish here. You can enter. You can approach with confidence and joy. You can approach the throne. Because he is the approach. You see, our approach is inseparably bound to his approach as the priest. We have no other approach. It's like saying we have no other covenant with God. We have no other relationship with God. He's it. Amen. So to sit back and observe my blemish is a waste of time because if you observe the life that God has bestowed, there's no blemish. Amen. Where's the blemish you see? Where's, where's your blemish? And that's the whole heading and structure of this psalm. We'll, we'll look at it before we run out of time. Keep, keep me up on that guy. <clears throat> Two hours maybe. I'm not here to ask for more time, but can I have more time? Um, but notice the restriction here. When you understand the exclusion of the law, you see that this exclusion, this picture of exclusion of the exclusion of the blemished is not just God isolating a particular section of people. But actually he's demonstrating the fact that all are blemished, but one. All but one are blemished. To come before the Lord because the blemish is in man. All but one priest. All but one priest is blemished. And that's why Paul will write that our high priest is not like others who had to first make offerings for himself. So that he could deal with his own imperfection first. So that he was able to offer to God for the people. No, not ours. He, he has no blemish. And as those who are found in him. Who are partakers and recipients of this grace and mercy bestowed by this one offering. Remember what we read in verse 3 and 4 of Romans 8. To do by the sacrifice of his son, what the law was incapable of doing, putting away the blemish so that now we could partake of a fulfilled righteousness. That's a different state. Now, there's other verses here, and I'm not going to comment on them. Paul would say again, in me that is in my flesh is what? No good thing. It's nothing but blemishes. And you know what he was in Romans 7? A man trying his best to live up to the excellencies of the precepts of God. A man knowing its excellence, knowing its beauty, knowing its spiritual, knowing God gave it, knowing God desired it, but knowing he couldn't do it. That's why most people preach Romans 7 as the state of a believer 
that's always back and forth, up and down, sin, saint. It, uh, you never know from day to day. It's a problem. But to understand that that's one man crying under the law for deliverance, and Romans 8 is him finding that deliverance in the life of another, the law of life. Now the law's testimony embodied in a life present in him, fulfilling in him what the law testified of beautifully, but couldn't provide. <clears throat> but here's words in Ephesians, it says this, it speaks of this very first part of the psalm. Blessed are those who are perfect and complete and unblemished. However, that, you know, all the definitions of that word that we read, Ephesians 5, 27, speaking of him and his church, so that he might present it, the church to himself, the assembly in glory. I love that. This is uh, the Young's literal translation. So he'll present it to himself as the assembly in glory, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing. That's the church. That's his body. Why? Because it's bound to him. Can't have it. But that it may be holy and unblemished. In other words, perfect in the way of the Lord. This is what his doing has accomplished. I was recently doing some classes and I come by a quote by St. Augustine, a terrible quote. And it was, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, it's a terrible quote, but it is the undergirding practice of the church. Because they look at that man as one of the great fathers in the church, and I don't deny that he was. He had some great works, but this quote was not one of them. It said, pray as though everything depends upon God, but work like all things depend upon you. And I'm thinking, what a beautiful mixed message. And we call that balance. We call that balanced preaching, right? That's the gospel in balance. Pray saying, God, it's all you, man. You got control of this. You did it all. But saying, work, because you just don't know. Maybe he didn't do it all. Maybe it's not so finished as you thought. Better work hard. Man, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel is your God reigns. That's what he says in Isaiah. That's what he says in, in chapter 10 of Romans when he speaks of the beautiful feet of those who bring the glad tidings to the church and they declare to them, your God reigns. Yes, Lord. How, how long has it been since you heard that? God. Your God reigns. Not you can impede the reign of your king. Who can? I don't know of any kingdom that had that happen. That a, that a little subject could d divest the king of his power in his domain. Do you really believe that? No, not going to happen. This is what we're talking about here. This is, again, I'm sorry, all these things. 
For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You are complete. Daniel said this first session. You are complete in him who is the head of every principality and power. Completion in him. Finished. Unblemished. Same word. Same thought. How does that happen? You're in him. You're found in him. So concentrate on this thought. In him who is the head. Because that's what we're going to see here in Romans. It's the same thing when Balaam put up on a high place looking over the encampment of Israel. Balaam wanted him to curse the people. But he got up there and he spoke to God and God showed him the reality of those people. And he couldn't curse what God had already blessed. And what was the great reality of that blessing? It's found right here, Numbers 23, uh, verse 20. Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. We think we can reverse everything God did with just a thought or whatever. Really? Can you now? Do you know what these people were involved in? These people that these words are about to be described, you know what they do the next chapter? They commit idolatry and fornicate. Now, I'm not condoning fornication or idolatry. But I'm telling you, there's something here that shows us that none of the things describing these people were defined by these people. Look at what he says. I cannot reverse his blessing. He, he, not me. Balaam's not saying I. He's saying this one I just spoke to, this God who's blessed them. He (coughs) hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. Neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him. And the shout of a what? King is in his midst. Man, that's a big statement. Now, let's let's go a little further in this psalm. I'm skipping over a lot of this stuff, but in verse 3, Psalms 119, they also do no iniquity who walk in his ways. Man, that's, that's beyond us. That's beyond me to sit here and try to even convey that thought. I mean, perfect observation of the law did not render such a, such a state. They do no iniquity. But you know what did? Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. I know it would be read again. (laughs) For this man, because he continues forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the other most. You hear that thought? He might save them to the uttermost. That means complete. 
there's no further, you can't go any further. That's to the extremity of something. He saves them to the extremity of it where it can't go beyond that. That's it. It's done. It's that salvation in total. And I was getting back to the woman with the issue of blood. You know what it said? Immediately her issue dried up. We're always saying in the process of time, this is going to happen. No, immediately. And you know what he told the woman after everything had happened? Immediately is used at least four or five times there. I think he's trying to stress a point that it's not a progress or, or, you know, procedure. It's an immediate work of touching him. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has saved you. That word healed, made you whole. It's the word for salvation. Now, a literal, not a literal, but I think it's the Weiss translation. He goes on and says, <clears throat> basically he's saying this. Your faith has rendered a permanent cure. Permanent cure. That's what we're talking about. A permanent cure that happens immediately. Now, the comprehension is not immediate. Our understanding of it's not immediate. We will know nothing until we see the one who has brought it about in its immediacy. But I'm telling you, it's permanent and it's immediate. Because it's a gift of God. Not withholding something back if you deserve it. You'll get it. But this man... Wherefore, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them, meaning his living is intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, meaning we were in need of this type of high priest. Look at his nature, who is holy, who is harmless, who is undefiled. Does that take you back to verse 1? Blessed are the undefiled. You know, those who would be undefiled, they needed a high priest who was undefiled to make that so. And he was separate from sinners, meaning not of us. And he made higher than the heavens who needs not daily as those priests to offer sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself once and immediate for the law maketh me and high priests who have weaknesses, infirmities, but the word of the oath in the resurrection makes the son who is consecrated and holy forever. Man, what a high priest. And this statement of perfection, they do know iniquity because they are perfect. The word perfect here? I'm sorry, the word they do know iniquity, that phrase. In the Hebrew, it's in the perfect tense. Now, perfect and imperfect is what they do. They don't do, you know, past, present, future. They do either perfect or imperfect. Perfect is kind of like our past tense, meaning it's already concluded as a whole. And... It means you'll look at something depicting the situation globally or externally, meaning you see it as a whole that's already concluded and done. He's not looking at the P 
uh, as the little pieces and parts and saying, this will happen during a duration of time. No, he declares it in a perfect tense by saying, this is already so. Because what we think is the doing no iniquity part is really a hard job and we're gonna ha- that's gonna take some time. Now what it takes is a source that has no iniquity in him. That's all it takes. You know how you get that? Be born of an incorruptible seed. Because once that happens, immediate, permanent, cured, it's done. Now again, that don't mean you know, that don't mean you understand, but that means he does. That's why the whole thing is to know even as we are already known of God. Because there's a knowing of God that girds us and holds us, kind of the substructure of the whole thing. Where he says, Paul says to Timothy, he's like, the foundation of the Lord stands sure, unmoved. Having one seal, the Lord knows those who are his. See, that's the sureness we stand on. The Lord knows who we're his. Oh, what a beautiful thing. I'm not getting forward. Um, that's all right. There's many places in this particular psalm that we can go into. I want to look at a couple. Ah, verse 5. Oh, that my ways were fixed to keep your statutes. That means to stand erect, to be perfect, to be stable, established. There's not one thing stable about the heart of man. And this man understood it. Perfect are your precepts, perfect are your ways, blessed. In a state of happiness and blessedness and joyfulness are those who walk perfectly. Now he says, oh, that my way was fixed in accordance to your law. And if you look at that, and it means to stand up straight, to stand erect where you were once on your back, there's only one who stood up that way. There's only one who was raised to stand upright. This whole thing is about being found in this one. That's where the heart becomes established. That's where the soul becomes not like this. One way, another way, vacillating on every wind and every whim. No, it becomes stable and fixed no matter what because the anchor holds it. The anchor holds it. Straight. Perfect. Now, there's... A, there's a, I'm I'm jumping over. I have verse 12 here where it says, Lord, teach me your statutes. You know, the word there in the Hebrew actually means a goad or a prick, the word teach. You remember where God told Paul, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for you to kick against the goad, for you to kick against the pricks. That's this word teach in the Hebrew. And it means you're kicking against my teaching. You're kicking against the very doctrine you think you're upholding by persecuting me. This is saying, teach me. 
as a beast of burden. Just teach me your precepts. How does that happen? To see the law himself. These are things fulfilled in a union with Christ, not in ourselves. Verse 25 of Psalms 119. My soul cleaves unto the dust. That speaks of being in death. Quicken, you, quicken thou me according to your word. Again, you won't come to me that you might have life. You're a bunch of people still cleaving to death, trying to find life in it. But if you would allow the law to do what it was intended to do, it will bring you to the life it speaks of. That's what the whole work of the law was. And that's what he's saying. Quicken me. Give me life in your law. You're not going to find life by just doing it. You find life by coming to the conclusive object of it. And the law's ultimate aim is to bring you as a schoolmaster to him. Paul said it very plainly, by the law. By the agency of the law, I have become dead to it. Isn't that something? The law was intended to bring you to a point where you don't need it any longer. You come to the one of whom it speaks. You're no, not so you could stay under its dominion, but so you could come to the conclusion of its testimony. That was the whole point of it. All right, I'm, I'm going to go quickly here. Remember, this is... Um, well... Is verse, uh, verses 49 through 50. Again, we're not going to do this because I want to just show you the structure of it. And I think what I've been saying and trying to say will make a little more sense. This is in the uh, segment called Zane. That's uh, another alphabet in the Hebrew language. Verse 49, remember the word unto thy servant upon which thou hast caused me to hope. You know, God subjected the same where? In hope. Why? By his law. How did he do it? Through his law. He subjected them to hope. But he subjected them to their own emptiness. This is a man empty of the very reality of which that excellent law speaks. So he's saying, listen, remember this word to your servant upon which I have caused it has caused my heart to hope. My heart is set and expected upon the reality of which your law speaks. How does that soul become a partaker of the thing hoped for? It's the very reality of Romans 8, isn't it? That he subjected an entire creation in hope. But now he realizes that that hope has come. How? Christ in you. The glory that was hoped for. Um, I'm going to turn here in Romans, uh, not Romans, I'm so used to saying Romans, in uh, verse 80 of Psalms 119, let my heart be sound in your statutes that I be not ashamed. In the English Standard Version, it says, <clears throat> let my heart be blameless in your statutes. And then it goes on in the next 
verse 81, my soul faints for your salvation. I have hoped in your word. How does this heart become blameless in the commandments? Because this reality that it's feigning for, one translation to Young says, I'm consumed with the hope of your salvation. Why? Because that's the whole thing, the law, the word, the precepts, the judgments, all of it that speak of this. That's what it was about. It was about a salvation that was coming in this one man. And a soul now, knowing the excellency of it, cries out and says, I am consumed for your salvation. I faint after your salvation. In verse 83, it goes on here. I am become like a bottle in the smoke, yet do I not forget your statutes. And that struck me a little weird, that, that verse. A bottle in the smoke. But it's actually speaking of the skins that were made into bottles or wine flasks. You know where it says that you can't put new wine in old skins. You need a new wine, new wine to go in new skins. That's the skin it's talking about. And he's the first thing you had to do before you could fill that skin up with liquid and make it full is you had to dry it out so completely that it had no liquid to it at all. It had to be so dry and, and desirous of liquid that it could hold this liquid you put in. That's what he's saying he is waiting on this law to be realized, that this perfection to be brought about. I'm like a dry skin waiting to be filled with a new wine. Now, why does this matter? <laughs> I've skipped over a whole lot of stuff, sorry. But why does this matter? Well, because again, in the construction of this psalm, you find the answer to the whole thing. You find the whole reality summed up. You see the answer and the dilemma, but you see the answer. The beauty of the law. It's all contained in the fact that this is what they call an alphabetical psalm. 22 different parts. Every, every line of every part starts with the Hebrew letter that it's attributed to that particular part. Meaning the Aleph, the first letter, the eight stanzas under that heading starts with the Aleph, every one of them. Subcommentaries said so they can remember these things and keep it memorized. 176 verses memorized. That's not going to be easy no matter how you head it. Okay, so I don't think that's the point. So if you go into this and realize the first and the last letter that make any sense already? The Aleph, which is the first letter, <clears throat> that's the ancient symbol. Every Hebrew letter has a symbol. First, this was the actual letter, then it became a symbol of the letter. What's that look like? It's an ox. It was a sacrifice. 
אלף, the first, first thing God had in mind, the thing that was the origin and source of the whole thing was an, was an animal sacrifice. They left. Then you have the towel, which is, I mean, I know by now you've looked at Revelations, right? Everywhere he says, I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the living one. He stands in the midst of his church, bound to him, declaring, I am the beginning. I am the end. I'm the Aleph and the Tau. I am the Alpha, the first letter and the last letter of the alphabet. I'm the whole of the speech of God. He has spoken in me and concluded his speech in me. I'm the Amen of everything he's ever said. But how did he say it? Because this is the whole thing, because here's the answer to this whole psalm being concluded, the beauty of it, and the crying for this to be a reality in the heart. How is it going to be that perfect is the way, perfect in the way? How are they going to be undefiled that, that have no iniquity in them at all? It goes back to what we read the first part of Romans 8. Starts with the ox. That's the symbol of the towel, the cross. In fact, in the early church, they wore this symbol, the towel. It was called the victory. Isn't that something? It's the towel cross. So this whole thing had one overriding theme. The Alpha, the Omega, the Aleph and the Tau, the first to the last, the, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher, and the whole crying for deliverance, crying for the perfection of the law, and the beauty of the law itself has one dominating head, and it's I am. And the both are the pictures of the cross, the whole thing is dominated by the cross because the answer to the dilemma of the psalm and the answer to the beauty of the law and how the law will be perfectly fulfilled is only realized by those who stand dominated by, under the headship of the Aleph and the Tau, the I Am, the Alpha and the Omega. So they live in the reality of it is not I, it is Christ who lives in me. Now we jumped over a lot of stuff to get to that conclusion, but this is a beautiful thing. In fact, this is, this letter here, the Hebrews called it everything in everything. Meaning it was the entire conclusion of the whole universe according to them. That that letter, the whole conclusion, this was the beginning of the universe and the conclusion of the universe. Everything and everything. Remember Paul saying, and he is all in all. He is everything in everything. That's what we're seeing here. That's the whole heading of this. In fact, there are over 700 places in the Hebrew scripture where this symbol is together. The Aleph and the Tau are are 
put together, and they are untranslated in every instance throughout the Hebrew scripture. Why? Doesn't make sense. <coughs> You'll see the Aleph and the Tau untranscribed in every translation are untranslated. You'll never see it. But in the Hebrew, it's right there, always. In fact, let me give you a couple instances. It shows you this, that how significant this is. In the Hebrew, it is, it is placed where it pertains to the importance of the subject matter. In the life, for example, in the life of Jacob and Esau. In Genesis 25, 28, both Jacob and Esau have the Aleph and Tau symbol in front of their names. Every time, except once, or except at a certain point. Um, both Jacob and Esau have the symbol in front of their names in the beginning of their life together, but the last time we see the Aleph and Tau symbol used in front of Esau's name is Genesis 27 and 1, where Isaac calls Esau to ask him to hunt him some savory meat so that he may bless Esau, even though Esau's name is used another 78 times in the Torah, the Aleph and Tau symbol are missing. Why? Because he gave up his birthright. Because the blessing went upon not Esau, Jacob. And when the blessings removed, the Aleph and Tau was removed. These things are not, they're just circumstancing, you know, in circum, you know, that's just a coincidence. The next time, and I'll stop here. <clears throat> Another example here is in, in the book of Ruth. Ruth's name is, is used 12 times in the book. The first time, there's no Aleph and Tau. The first 10 times, there's no Aleph and Tau attached to her name. You know when the Aleph and Tau started to be attached to her name? When she found her Redeemer, her kinsman, Redeemer. And then the Aleph and Tau, the I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and Omega started being joined to her name. This is not coincidental. This is God orchestrating something to show us how is it that blessed are those? How is that blessed state of perfection, undefilement actually brought about? It is being found in, joined to, born of this perfect one who has dominated the whole story from the very start. So, you can go on and read a lot of different places that we didn't read, but hopefully this didn't jump around too much and it made some sense. The whole reality is the fact that from the moment we are born of God, we are brought under this headship. We are brought under this dominion. We are down joined to this one. The reality of it is not I but Christ, the cross governs the whole walk from the very start. The cross governs the whole reality because the whole reality is not I but Christ from the very beginning. You don't get there by process. You get there immediately as the reality of the work of the cross comes into your soul. It is not I but Christ, but we grow in that reality as we see him.
and grow in this grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And I'm glad it says that. We grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. It's not our knowledge growing. It's we grow in the knowledge that belongs to the Lord. So, all right, guys. Thanks for your patience.